Hi everyone and welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring all aspects of cybersecurity, including tales of risk, reward, and just a dash of ridiculousness with some lesser known elements that you may not know about. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues of Mindcast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking into the different ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. Whether you're joining us from lovely hot South Africa like Brian or cold and wintry London like me, we've got an exciting episode for you today that is most certainly going to be a bright start to your week. Welcome to our new podcast, Fishy Business. We've got a fascinating guest speaker for our first episode, Jenny Radcliffe, otherwise known as the People Hacker. Now, we know what you must be thinking, the people hacker, what's that all about? Jenny is a psychological hacker and social engineer, focusing on the gap between human and cybersecurity. She helps her clients assess their security by attempting to break into their organizations, using human beings more than technology. Her diverse experiences have been a core strength, from her psychological expertise to a kidnapping incident when she was younger, which I think we're definitely going to be getting into. Have we whet your appetite yet? So welcome, Jenny. Are you happy with that intro? Uh, did I leave anything out or did I cover most of the key things? No, I think that's fine. And thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Oh, thank you for joining us. Extremely <laughs> excited to have you with us today. You're otherwise known as the people hacker. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I can't take credit for it, really. It was um, very early on. So honestly, about 10 years ago, I had um, an interview with a really talented journalist and she said, oh, should I think you're like the people's hacker? And I thought, I'm, I'm nicking that. Yeah, people hacker. Mostly <laughs> just because they point to the fact that I don't use tech so much and, and more weight with the psychology of, of the humans, really. And, and so it, it fits very well, the job. And I thought it was clever, so I nicked it. And she was happy that I did, I hasten to add. Is that how you explain what you do to someone at a pub or at a dinner party? I know when I sit next to people at dinner parties, they go, oh, God, you know, so what are you doing? I go, I'm in cybersecurity. And you can see them shuffling in their chairs and going, oh. See the light go out in their eyes. Before uh, COVID, I used to travel a lot. And people do tend to ask you in the airport or on trains and things, you know, what is it that you do for a living? And my actual title would be a physical penetration tester, which is a bit away of misses. So I kind of go, I'm a security consultant. And like you say, at that point, they either think I'm kind of a security guard or a bouncer on a nightclub or something. No, this is people who are not in the industry at all. And it's always that I have to elaborate. And if I elaborate, I say, you know, I'm a burglar for hire. We test security using the human beings, using psychology. And of course, once you say that, that's it. As my family say, and now it's about Jenny. So am I a good dinner party guest? I think they like that. They like to hear it, but pretty soon they get very nervous about sitting next to me and they, they say, you're doing it now. <laughs> you're people hacking <laughs> me now, aren't you? It's like, I do not do it all the time. <laughs> Have things changed because of COVID in terms of your ability to do your job? And apart from not being able to travel, if you go into a building to try and hack some people, there's no people there. It's so funny because I was asked to do a lot of physical infiltrations. But there was a stipulation that I had to use COVID as part of the story. And there were two views, and I'll tell you what mine was in a minute. But one was, it's got to be the easiest thing in the world now, because, you know, you can wear a mask <laughs> and the buildings are empty. And my view was, well, that's true. But, you know, you if the building is empty, you will notice someone walk, <laughs> trying walking to get in. through it. <laughs> um, you know, so the security was stood down. I mean, a lot of security was stood down and they were left with sort of skeleton security on a lot of facilities. 
but there was still, you know, CCTV and that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, obviously with the lockdown, most businesses have, uh, you know, a lot of offices are sort of mothballed or, or, or on half measures. And it really is, um, although security would be a reason that you could, you know, it's going to work as, as, as such. It's not something that, that that I think is a good enough reason, not just a standard test to break the lockdown because we've had a very bad where I am in the north of England. So it affected it that way, but then it ramped up. And I know you're going to ask me some questions on a bit later, but it ramped up in terms of the virtual side of social engineering, the scams, the cons, the, the hustles, that all just ramped up. And the investigation side and the sort of warning people and speaking about that is something that was very necessary and just went mental. I mean, I, you know, there were days I were given, I was given sort of three or four interviews and commenting on things and analyzing stuff as well. So social engineering can be physical, but because of the virtual element and the fact that criminals use that part, you know, that use these things as part of their narrative sort of ramped it up. With that as well, Jenny, from your experience, and obviously, as you say, kind of moving to that virtual world, a lot of people are working from home, so they're not having that kind of corporate influence on them while they're in the office. Mm-hmm. What would you say has been one of the most kind of worrying mistakes that you've seen people make that they fall into these traps and how can they avoid it? It's just so difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, the mistake, if we want to put it that way, and it is that, you know, our guard went down because, you know, it was, it was just this mad dash to get everyone working from home and everyone online I think at the beginning and the mistake we made lots of mistakes oh everyone made lots of mistakes you know include myself so you know <laughs> people were grabbing any device they could find to get work done to get online we had you know people using the kids iPads <laughs> for work meetings and we saw it you know we saw it on social media things like <laughs> publishing zoom passwords and things and, and so there was that sort of zoom crashing and, and so you know video calls of all types getting crashed there was the, those sort of basic mistakes that happen when people's minds are on other things and when your back's against the wall you're just trying to get going I think it was the basic things that really first kicked off the kind of security concerns and then of course as time went on and people were trying to adapt to the sort of homeworking situation that we've all got now. We saw gradually more and more sort of sophisticated mistakes coming in, sophisticated scams to do with the virus itself, to do with the situation that we're in, which is ongoing now. We've got stuff now about the vaccine as well. So it's not that things change. It's not that social engineering really changes. It just adapts to whatever else is going on. And of course, criminals adapt very well. We actually saw that as well. We've got some quite hard data to to show that. And it's interesting that you're backing that up. Initially, when the pandemic first started, we were kind of accused of scaremongering and saying, well, you know, the the kinds of it, the volume of attacks hasn't changed. It's just the type, you know, they're they're just using COVID-themed phishing, but it's all just the same amount of phishing. And we actually showed that that wasn't the case. There was a huge amount of of phishing. But the thing that I was quite interested in, I'd love you to comment on this, is we also saw a rise, because we've actually got a really nice baseline of people doing things that they shouldn't do, like clicking on, on links and emails, some good, some bad, and we obviously protect them from that. But what we saw during certainly the initial part of lockdown, and it varied by country as they went into hard lockdown, there was almost kind of a, people just threw away everything they knew and started clicking on links. And, and we had to make some educated guesses as to why that might be. Maybe it was the clear mongering and this desperation for information and, and whatever it might be. But I mean, I'd love your view on what, that, what else it could be. And if you saw anything similar. Absolutely. It it ramped up tremendously. I think what maybe perhaps um, ramped up the most was the people paying attention to everything that came in. Because from one hour to the next, 
nobody had any clue what you needed to know. I mean, the world's, you know, people are saying all the time, the world's gone mad. I mean, and that's how it feels to people. And in that atmosphere, you're right. I think it's absolutely right that people threw the normal rules out of, out of the window and kind of just try people were trying to cope it was a coping strategy of just oh I've got to get through the next 24 hours you know I've got to try and do something about school and the children getting on with my job so it's a very difficult situation for people and and what we know is in times of fear and of course it's still a very frightening time for people if you look at the events you know politically globally as well as the as the virus it's all you know it's a very uncertain time for people and it's difficult for government and business sort of you know by definition, to really know what to say. And so what I saw was I saw lots of businesses who had really good recovery plans in place, you know, doing quite well. And there was quite a few of them and they had good vendors backing them up and good product and they kind of planned for it. But there was a lot that sort of had half planned for it or didn't plan at all. And they were on their feet and trying to do their best. And in that atmosphere, you know, people will not necessarily be discerning when emotions are high logic has kicked off the cliff and people are scared and they don't know where to turn and the advice is changing and it created a you know and I've said it before but it created a perfect storm from your experience focusing on more of the sort of non-technical space and and where you're looking to kind of get into buildings and sort of penetrate in that way how do you gain experience to do that sort of ethically yeah that's quite hard That's one of my first questions. Yeah, I was like, oh, I've got to ask Jenny how how you gain experience in that area. I mean, honestly, Alice, I am asked that question so many times. I, I must I must get a dozen or more emails, you know, every week saying, how can I gain experience? You know, how how can I get into the into the business? And the truth is, there still isn't really an obvious route into social engineering from the physical side. And the really, in some ways, there can't be. If we standardise mm. it, 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 you're going to start thinking, everyone's going to think along tram lines. So I've got a lot of friends and colleagues from law enforcement and the military who are trained to do similar things, but they need that kind of element of sort of criminal mindset, naughtiness, criminality, to really do it properly because you can't all think the same way, so, and, which is acknowledged, um, by the way, by those people. So it's very tricky to do it I think from a physical infiltration point of view you can learn a lot online as you can learn about anything online you can learn about locks you can learn about windows you can learn about security but the biggest thing to turn someone into a good social engineer in any aspect is an interest in people by which I I always say you have to really understand that everyone has a story everyone has a life everyone has a routine and you become an observer of that And once you can do that with an individual, you start to be able to do that with a team or with a building. And it's really about that. It's putting the hours in really with surveillance and watching people. And to put that amount of time, I think you have to really care. So that's what I say. So you have to really care about, you have to be fascinated by people. What would you say is kind of the quickest amount of time you've been able to break in and then the longest amount of time? Oh my God. That is a good question because it's a very hard question to answer because there's two parts to it. So as a professional, if I have a crew on, on, on a physical infiltration or any social engineering element, and especially if I'm on my own somewhere foreign to me, you know, somewhere not, that's not the UK and somewhere difficult, I would over-prepare. So I would have a plan A, B, C and probably D. And I would know sort of what I was going to do. And we'd look for a long time. But in the event, sometimes it takes no time. Sometimes you just, sometimes you can have so much work and preparation and you could have compiled all your intelligence and done everything. 
And then you just walk in. I mean, I remember there was a there was a shopping center once, and we there was a I was tasked, me and a team, I had three people with me. All we were tasked to do was get into the management offices. So we had to get into the offices and get a few things off the computer and a few bits and pieces. And you know, it 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 was something that it wasn't particularly difficult, but it was a complicated setup in terms of the physical building and the routines weren't particularly routine, you know, it was there wasn't so many patterns. And so we had all kinds of pretexts and I had a kit with me that I wouldn't normally have, you know, lots of stuff. And in the event, you know, a colleague of mine just walked in and I walked in after him. There's no one there and we just got in. So <laughs> it's a surprising job. Things can sometimes go very smoothly. The mark of a professional is that you prepare for when they don't. And I think one of the things that really angers me about the way social engineering, physical social engineering is perceived is the idea that you can get through with a wink and a smile. You know, that you just tailgate in and, you know, when everyone's an idiot and go and let you, oh, I'm here to fix the computer. Oh, well, then here's the password. That really annoys me because although it sometimes does occur, that is not professional. Um, and you've got to treat the job like a professional because the criminals do, you know. So that's what I'd say. I'd say the quickest we've ever got in. I've just, I mean, I try and get in and out in 90 minutes anyway, depending on the site, but mostly about 90 minutes. Wow. Really? Yeah. If, wow. It's, if okay. you're clicking over that, people will start to notice. We're actually picking up some very good, again, hard data on awareness training and how, first of all, the difference between, you know, a good baseline of someone who has no awareness training. We can pick up if you've got our awareness training or one of our competitors' awareness training. Mm-hmm. And we've seen, and I won't, you know, without sort of going into too much detail on that, we've actually seen an improvement in user behavior, you know, less likely to fall for scams and things like that. But maybe not as much as one would hope overall. You know, what's your view on awareness training? in terms of things like improving users' ability not to fall for these scams? There's lots of ways psychologically you can do it, but essentially it's about regular, adaptive, tailored communication, which is not something I see everywhere in the training. My personal view on it is that you, you can't just assume that everybody you, you, that everybody's going to absorb and react to those messages in the same way it's just it's got to be a constantly measured constantly adapted message and that really means you've got to hand it back to the people to spread it this podcast is not just focused on the uk and as you can hear from my accent uh, it's very much uh, south african middle east uh, and european as well and we found some very interesting differences between for example uh, German-speaking countries and some of the contents. You can't even just translate directly. I remember, without again going into too much detail, there were a couple of phrases, probably the, the, the sort of uh, least offensive one was going down the rabbit hole. Apparently, Germany means something slightly sexual and, and, and not uh, what it means in English. You know, they don't have the Alice in Wonderland connection to, to that phrase. Terrible assumption made that everybody thinks that that's okay. It's hard to do it on a glue. You know, this is what I'm saying. It has to be adaptive and tailored. All messaging and communication, and in fact, all entertainment as well. Not that I'm saying that, that, that you know, security awareness is entertainment, but you know, a joke, something, a joke in China, or what Chinese people find funny is not necessarily what English people or Indian people would find funny or people in Africa. So you can't, you just want that one size fits all, whilst necessary for scale in a business, you know, to do the best you can and get that broad message out. It's never going to be sustainably effective in one dose 
<laughs> like the vaccine. See the, way, see the way all the vaccination language is just coming out and I'm not even talking about that. You want to vaccinate people against cybersecurity mistakes through training. You know, it's never going to be that effective because it just is completely different. I mean, I, I, I did tons of work in China. I worked off and on in China for years and I did lots of penetration tests in China and throughout Asia. And there was times when um, I was doing a talk or doing some training or, or whatever, or reporting back, and I couldn't have told you why it was funny. You know, what do you like? They're laughing at me, not with me. <laughs> it's probably that, but you know, you can't. So you, yes, cultural adaptation is a, you have to dance an elegant dance when you're trying to get something out, you're trying to protect people at scale, when you're trying to produce a good product that's scalable for everybody and that everyone gets some knowledge in, that's a tricky thing to do. Jenny, from your experience, what would you say has been, I don't know if weirdest is the right word, but the strangest or most intriguing job you've ever done? It's so difficult because that adjective, weird, strange, I mean, well, I, I mean, I was <laughs> thinking about this before it came on and it's such a difficult thing to say because it depends what you mean. Almost every job is strange because it's a strange profession. And I was thinking, do I say to Alice, like, do you mean, do you mean uh, weird as in scary or as in bizarre? From a point of view of terrifying, there's plenty of those. And I mean, I've had everything from being chased by gangs, having armed uh, security guards looking for me in a far-flung part of Asia with nobody coming for me and no real reason to be there. I mean, I, you know, I didn't question a lot at the beginning. Some of the people gave me the jobs. So that was a straight-up burglary. And if I'd have been caught, no one knew where I was, you know. So there was like, there's that kind of thing. But then there's the bizarre instances of things like, there's times when I've like eaten birthday cake and, and, and or like at the same time. So basically I was breaking into an office on my own, a client I go to a lot and they never ever implement what I tell them to implement, but it's a basic job. And I think they just, they just like me doing it and reporting it and giving them a bit of training, whatever, I don't know. Some people are caught up in the romance of it. But one year I was there and it was a very windy night and a rainy night. And, and I got into the office and they'd obviously been having a, a celebration, someone's birthday in the office. And there was a birthday cake that they'd obviously been eating. And I would never advocate that you just eat something <laughs> that you find in an office. But I was hungry and it looked lovely. So I had a piece of the cake. And while I was eating the cake, I noticed there was a small cat um, near the windowsill. And I thought, I've got to rescue the cat because, I mean, it's going to jump out the window in the middle of it, you know, just bizarre. And I did, I put it in my rucksack and took it out, you know, and, you know, hilarity ensued. So like, there's the bizarre, there's the dangerous, there's the bizarre. And I mean, the, and the only other one I'd say, there was a time I did a job, I got locked in the room. I'd done, the, I'd done and got into the safe and it's the fine cabinet and everything. And I was coming out, I tried to get out and I couldn't get out the door and lock myself in. So I got out through the window and walked around the edge of the building. And as I was walking around the edge of a building, I saw another team that were either real burglars, I think most likely, or another penetration testing team in another office breaking into a safe. And I'm like four floors up on the outside of a building in the middle of Brussels with police and ambulances and everything uh, on the way. So I just went down oh, the fire escape. But I thought, this is the, I remember thinking that's the straight, if you like, the weird, the most bizarre was that I was paid to be there, but were they? And if they were, who's like, why would you have two teams doing the same thing in the same building at the same time? Or was I a fake burglar that had happened upon <laughs> an actual burglary? And That's I got down the fire escape and left and never got, never found out why. Never asked. Wow. 
And I think that's why I like the kind of vagueness of weirdest because <laughs> I was just super intrigued to let, see let what your initial, what... exactly what your initial answer was going to be. I was like, I'll let Jenny include all, in the things she wants. Alistair, all, <laughs> all strange. I was in Germany two years ago. I was in Germany and the access point was up again off the top of a big fire escape. And it had been the hottest summer. I mean, unbelievably warm day. And my team were inside doing something. They would bring me in. I had to do one or two things. A lot of the time, the clients wanted me to take a photograph of myself at the desk. And so it was like, so there's Jenny at the CEO's desk or whatever. And it was one of those. And then there was a huge thunderstorm. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, like, everything was slipping through my hands to get in through the fire door. I couldn't get in. I couldn't do anything. So I just sat down and started doing my, just put my head over my phone to keep the water off. And answered all my emails and looked at my diary. And I was up there on the top of a fire escape in the middle of a thunderstorm. When you're in different countries and you maybe don't speak that language, do you find that that has a major impact on the way that you do your kind of infiltrations? It does, but I get away with absolute anything because I don't look dangerous. So I just Uh thought, and I never did. So I just got, so so it actually becomes part, it's not that it's easy and there are jobs I can't, I won't do. And the areas of the world that I really won't go into because I know, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at it, it's not going to get me that far but most <laughs> of the time you know you you adapt the pretext to whatever it is the clients or, or the target site invites and you know I mean I always think the time you know there was a again that was Germany but there was a bank I was getting into in Germany and my pretext basically was I was going in to do some training didn't speak German and I used the fact that like if you swear a lot in a, in a Liverpool accent it does really does create the crowd sounds great much better if you swear in a scouse accent than almost any other and i use that you know i don't i don't even speak german you know no speaking to deutsch you know <laughs> and they kind of like you people... just proved it yeah <laughs> <laughs> See? but exactly right why i do it like that because then they sort of go hey what oh, okay and the thing is you create that force you look hopeless and hapless and people will take it on board themselves to be the adult in that situation and that's what you want them so you want you you can then follow their lead but unfortunately what really you're doing is reverse psychology and they're following yours and so you just oh God, go in you're hopeless just go in and it's okay like come okay. on <laughs> come on then mm-hmm. like oh yeah. thank you for being my savior oh thank you <laughs> sorry i was a bit cross i think the skill of many years of doing it is being able to adapt on my feet really so you typically get hired by who by the cybersecurity team by the CISO by the IT manager or, or is it by the the board of an of a company and and the reason I'm asking the question is how do you then convince the business to make changes based on what what it is that you've done because otherwise makes for entertaining stories I'd love to sit next to you at a dinner party I think you'd mm. keep me entertained for hours but mm-hmm. how does that change well, I might, if I felt <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> well <laughs> your family might be sitting there rolling their eyes and going oh it's all about now it's about Jenny <laughs> But do things change? You mentioned the one client who just likes to have you there because they like the stories and the training. But I mean, do organizations harden up their security other than some of the obvious things like, oh, well, you know, we better make sure that when someone's got a broken arm and they're swearing in a in a Liverpool accent and we don't let them in next time. But Oh, so you did look at that story in more detail, I see. <laughs> the information security business um, has got a classification of, of a physical pen tester. I, I, I don't really fit into that and I'm not necessarily hired to do the same, exactly that job and exactly the same thing as the standards within the business. So 
usually if you were if you were to just look up you know if you get someone who can do a penetration test you normally get people who use technical elements as well as um you know some elements of social engineering but i'm just pure social engineering and i've been doing it for years i mean you know long long before i even would have called it social engineering and long before there was this multi-billion dollar industry around what we do that's kind of you know up the game and improved the techniques and everything i mean i really just started out as literally was just someone who, who was a burglar, really. And because of that, I, I'm sort of hired by a diverse sort of tranche of clients. There, there is people who just want standard pen tests that know me through the industry, know me through the, the podcast or the public speaking. And that's nice. And, you know, I do those. But I was also hired by private individuals, high net worth individuals, and kind of more traditional security, shall we say, to do jobs so you know sometimes it's not necessarily a penetration test like where you know you get a tick list of everything that you've been asked to do and you go through that and then you go and you do a report back sometimes you know I'll be hired to take something or um to monitor someone or do some surveillance so there are different aspects of my job it depends on who is asking me to do what will depend on whether or not they hard enough security as a result of it generally speaking if I make a recommendation it, it's done and it's done probably fairly quickly because I wouldn't have been asked to do it unless it was a very serious request. I am absolutely happy to go with people who just want me, who, who will do a couple of things because I managed to get through a fence, you know, or shoot out a windscreen or something with a pellet gun or whatever we do, whatever hijinks story that we used to do more of than we do now. And I'm happy to kind of do the kind of, we've told you to do it and you didn't do it. So now we're going to come back next year and make a point of saying that we told you to harden that off last year. But you'd be surprised the amount of clients who pay for these things as a compliance exercise. Absolutely love the training and, and everything else, but fix what's easy. to they fix the low-hanging fruit. The more user friction is involved and changing of people's behavior, the less likely clients are to make those changes, whether it's two-factor authentication or whatever it might be. They, yeah. they don't like doing it if it upsets the users in some way. The perfect example for me for that is something like zero trust, where what you're actually doing is constantly updating and taking something off someone that they've already had, even if they never use it. If you've got, if you've always had something and now it's not there, people get very annoyed about that and are immediately defensive. It's almost reactance in, in psychological terms, and because of that, you know that, that that's a challenge. But what I always say to clients is, you can't just throw money at this situation. It doesn't work like that. You need time and effort and energy with your people throwing money at it won't work you can only go so far with that type of solution people hack it that's why because I know that that's the case and I know it's the only way through you've been involved in the hunted series in the UK on, yes. on channel four and I know there's many hunted series kind of across the world and um, for anybody who does not know about it it's normal people uh, looking to be fugitives kind of running away from from the hunters one of which is Jenny with your kind of experiences from that show huge fan personally myself how do you find it tracking those people are there any people that completely get it wrong and it doesn't even make air or you know any people where they make your lives really really difficult so first of all I only ever did one series and it was the only series in the whole of the global syndication where we caught them all just saying there are ways that you can avoid being tracked. But if you can't resist doing certain things, we're going to get you. I mean, I'll just have you. There's a big OSINT element to it. So obviously we look back and we look at all their, um, you know, uh, associates and look at look at who they hang out with and things. But, yeah, you know, everyone 
all that data that the people put out there is nothing without someone to to create a story and to find out what that means and that's and that's what we do but yeah i mean they can't resist you know these are futures on a show but i have seen it in the criminal space as well people cannot resist talking about what they're doing especially if it's a win and i see it in the business as well you know there's this attention is very addictive let's face it if you go on a tv show aiming to avoid being detected you really are someone who wants attention and they all want attention as as a people like when I looked at it I just look at well where's their weaknesses what what are they gonna when are we gonna get them on and you know there's brilliant psychologists on the show Donna's a brilliant psychologist and she goes into detail as well there were two lads on in the series I worked on and they were they were really good sports I mean I kind of I didn't want anyone to win and I don't I don't feel one bit sorry for catching them all but if like (laughs) I had to have chosen they they were really good sports and they gave us a real run for our money but they were um, into fitness and things and they were doing at one stage doing press ups and lifting weights and things in the middle of a city center. And we just, I think them. I remember that one. Well, <laughs> what you didn't see is we just cut them off. Doesn't know. Cause we knew they were going to try it, but that particular day we knew exactly where they were, but we had the hunters focused on something else, but we were watching them all the time, but they couldn't resist showing off cause they were young and they were playing social media very well. And they were good looking lads and they wanted to do the press ups and show off the muscles in the middle of a city center. And we're just watching them. Just went out. Do you know what? Cut your Instagram. Bye. It was great. That was the cyber team. Cyber team are amazing on that show. So you've spoken about psychology. And I guess someone who gets into psychology is, you know, someone who's very interested in people and they're often triggered by something when they're younger. Oh, yeah. Um, We're probably going to get into huge trouble if we don't ask you the question. (laughs) Something triggered you when you were young and it wasn't, you haven't got into psychology. You've actually gone into the kind of intersection between psychology and criminology, if you will. Maybe you've got yeah. a different way of describing that. But I mean, maybe no, that's, take us through I'd that. say that's exactly it. And I think that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's confusing sometimes because people think I actually am a professional psychologist. Now, I've studied it to professional level, to master's level, but I never took exams or anything. So I'm always getting really careful about it. But I think, Brian, you're right. It's more, it's a case of looking at the criminology and the psychology, you know, together, really. You have a story about when you were young, would you say that was what triggered your interest overall? Or do you think that was just part of a, a you know, the beginning of a longer journey? The story that, that I think you're referring to is, I was growing up in Liverpool, and I, I guess when you look, I, I never thought about it till I, till I sort of had to look back and, I, and see if there was a moment when I kind of wanted to do this and, you know, or, or when I decided to do it. And to label it that way was very difficult. But when I, when I really look back on my life, when people say, how did you get into it? There was a point when I was a child where I was in kind of a rough neighborhood, but a friendly neighborhood, you know, it was a working class kind of, everyone had the same challenges and everything and quite a close knit community. But I, but I was, um, I was just little and me and my friend got taken and took into a neighbor's house. This, this lady came out. Well, to me, she was a lady. She was only a sort of an older teenager and I, and said, Oh, you must be really thirsty. We've been out playing, you know, for, for a couple of hours. She'll come in and get some squash. And then she, she let my little friend go. And then she held me in this house and she held me for best part of a day. So you're probably talking from 9am till something like seven, seven thirty at night. It was a long time for a little kid. And although she didn't sort of physically hurt me, she didn't let me do what I wanted to do. She didn't let me go to the bathroom, for example. She made me kind of dance around to music and stuff. And, and it's effectively, I mean, it's kidnapping, essentially. And I just remember thinking, I can't, I can't get out. And I was so little and I, and I could look across, you know, through the windows and I could see other kids playing out across the street. And I just had this horrible, overwhelming feeling of sadness. And anyone who's ever been in this type of situation will know exactly what I mean. 
this sadness was just like that'll never be me again I'll never ever be able to do that again I know I won't get out of this building and so you know it's, it's kind of very uh and you have coping strategies and one of the things uh, I've spoken about before is there was a uh, flowers on the carpet and I was counting the flowers over and over again because what you're trying to do is detach yourself from your physical situation in the end, it was fine. Yeah, we, my mum came. So my little friend had sort of said, she thought I was with my friends and in my friend's house, which happens all the time. Found out it wasn't there. They spoke to my friend. She said, oh, she's in this num- you know, number, whatever. And my mum came. And as she came, the lady, uh, the woman in the house who had hold of me, answered the door. And I ran to the door and she grabbed me and put her hands over my mouth, pushed me really hard back against the wall so I couldn't move. And when my mum asked if I was there, she said, no. And I knew in that moment I would, that if I didn't get out then, I'd never get out. I just knew she wouldn't let me out. There was something so strong in me. I mean, I would have been eight, maybe seven or eight, and she was 18, so it's an, it's an adult to a child. And I just kind of knew it. I just thought, I'll never get out. I'll never see my mum again, you know, if I don't say it and do something now. And I pulled her finger back, a little finger, which is a very painful thing to do, I didn't know. I just pulled her finger out of my mouth and shouted, my mum and grabbed me and took me. And and I think, but in that moment, I thought, if I get out of this, I'll never be this helpless again. Not that articulate because I was so little, but I I, I do very much remember thinking if I was a superhero, if I was a superhero, I'd be able to get out of this and I'm going to be one. In South Africa here, one of our big clients, and I'm I'm happy to mention them because they're quite proud of this initiative. Uh, It's one of the large retail banks here called Absa Bank, Mm -hmm. has actually started a cybersecurity academy specifically targeting working class kids because of obviously the social upliftment side, but also the kind of experiences those kids have are kind of mirrored in some of your stories there. And they're starting to see that those kids actually make really good cybersecurity people because of something that's kind of, you know, maybe it's innate, maybe it was kind of part of their upbringing inadvertently or or otherwise. But, But it's just interesting that there's a kind of a parallel there between your story and some of their stories. To be streetwise and to have a little bit about improvising is a huge part I think of, of it, it's not the only route to it you know I know plenty of people who've had quote unquote more privileged backgrounds if you like I'm asked sometimes about what I take with me on a job and I take very little and part, part of the reason for that was it's very difficult to explain some things away it's difficult to explain lockpicks away if you're caught I was told very early on you know, try, try not to do that and we take things like mints, you know, um, strong extra strong mints I take those and use them as chalk because if you've got chalk that's more difficult to explain than a mint, but it'll do the same job. So I think there's a certain amount of improvisation that comes with not having many resources. And so one of the things I always say is, you know, never underestimate a clever kid with no money and time on their hands because you will come up with reasons and ways to get around whatever obstacles in front of you. It's that resourcefulness, I think, that really it does tend to beat the most well-prepared person who's just working along a tram line it's that diversity of thinking that's so so important and it's not just diversity of background it's every type of diversity because the more diverse your security force the more likely you're going to have people with different survival mechanisms different thinking and all of that is going to make you much stronger in the end thank you so so much jenny for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure having you for our listeners I imagine they'll want to find out a lot more about kind of your experiences and, and maybe follow you as well. Are there areas where they can best find you? I'm easy to find, funnily <laughs> enough. Um, my handle's People Hacker, and you'll find that, you know, waffling on on Twitter all the time and on LinkedIn. And the website's Human Factor Security, which is really 
from a professional point of view, if you need to hire us for, for pen tests and things like that, it'll be on there. If you watch LinkedIn and Twitter, you'll see, you know, interviews and, you know, nuggets of uh, humour as well as, as professional stuff. And uh, I just want to say thanks for you guys having me on the show. It was my privilege and honour to be here. Thank you so much as well to all of our listeners for joining us for this week's Fishy Business. It's been a pleasure having you guys with us as well. So um, if you have enjoyed our podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're hearing this. Feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed and about our next podcast episodes. <laughs>